The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Turn with me, if you would, to Colossians chapter 1. Amen. We are starting our eight-week series in the book of Colossians, and this series is titled Christ Alone, and uh, I am really stoked. Um, We see the word Christ used 15 times. The word Christ is used 15 times in the four short chapters that comprise this book, and a direct reference to Christ, either by that name or by the title Messiah or by the pronoun he or him. So we see Christ being directly referenced 35 times in chapter 1 alone. So why so much emphasis, you ask, uh, on King Jesus in this letter from Paul to the church at uh, Colossae? I would say, first of all, that Jesus is the emphasis of every single book in the Scriptures and of all of the Bible that his gospel, all of the Old Testament's pointing forward to the fact that he's coming. The gospels tell us he came. Acts and the epistles tell us how to live in light of the fact that he did come. All of the Bible's about Jesus. It's just not always as blatant as it is in Colossians. Secondly, and the other reason I think we have a high emphasis upon Christ and his work here in the book of Colossians is that Paul is affectionately writing to a church that he did not plant. And what he's trying to do is push back against what is commonly referred to as the Colossian heresy. There's debate uh, among scholars about exactly the nature of this heresy. Uh, Earlier commentators thought that the false teaching in Colossae was Gnosticism, right? Gnosticism is uh, a belief that salvation is found through hidden knowledge, uh, primarily, but also that uh, all physical matter is evil and the spirit is good. And so um, it would, they would say things like Jesus didn't rise bodily. Uh, they kind of hate everything material and, and overemphasize things spiritual, uh, but also that salvation is found through hidden knowledge. So some commentators thought that Gnosticism was being pushed upon the church there. Some more recent scholars have put forth the idea that uh, principles of Jewish mysticism were creeping in and being mixed with the gospel. We see that often uh, you know, an attempt of Satan to confuse the early church. The reality is we can't be totally sure what the lies were that Satan was trying to use to dilute the gospel's power in this ancient city. But here's what we do know for sure. Paul points, and we know for sure what Paul points to as the remedy for any and all confusion or deception. Paul lifts up and points to Jesus Christ alone. And so it doesn't matter if it was Gnosticism, mysticism, if it was pantheism, panentheism. I mean, there's some talk about the elemental parts of the earth and people were being focused on that. It really doesn't matter what the deception is, what the lie is, what the confusion is, or what the distraction is. No matter what's coming forward, the thing that puts the kibosh to all that is bringing people's eyes back, bringing their focus back, bringing their attention and their affection focused back on King Jesus and his beautiful gospel. And that is the primary thrust of the book of Colossians. It also happens to be the primary thrust of my life and a lot of what we do here at this church. So we're going to be right at home in the book of Colossians together. Amen? Uh, this, this fact um, that, that lifting up Jesus Christ alone is the remedy to all confusion and distraction, uh, this is why we stick so close to Jesus and his gospel here at Love City. Uh, the first century spiritual environment was not that different than our own, if you think about it. 
People were borrowing and mixing religious teachings, putting them together to form a system that suited them best. The only remedy to this sinful tendency is to lift Jesus and his gospel up high and keep telling the truth in love, no matter how unpopular that might become. And so that's what we'll keep doing, and that's what we're going to do through this series. Uh, So what we're going to do is read the first 12 verses of Colossians 1, and then we're going to go back through them together, okay? So uh, I'm in Colossians chapter 1. I'm going to start in verse 1. Let's go. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Amen. Uh, So let's go back. We'll start at verse 1 here. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. As often happens, some question Paul's authorship uh, of this book because of the style uh, and also the theological development. As as you go throughout the letter, it's it's evident that um, there's a high level of... uh, like theological underpinnings laid out in this thing. I think this criticism is mostly due to scholars limiting Paul's ability to express himself differently uh, when the situation warranted it. And so I think they look at his tone and style and the words he uses in maybe other letters and think that that's the only ones he knows. I don't know why that's ever assumed. Uh, The letter starts out by saying it's written by Paul. Um, It is most likely that this letter was written during Paul's imprisonment in Rome. Uh, as he wrote some other letters there, uh, that's around A.D. 60, okay? Uh, It is widely thought that Paul probably dictated this letter to Timothy, who wrote it down for him, as a scribe would, and that would explain Paul mentioning him being there as well. Um, It may seem curious that Paul starts off by saying that he is an apostle, Uh, but we have to remember that Paul had not met these believers, um, uh, these Colossian believers. He had not met them face-to-face, And so he was in a way introducing himself, and he was letting them know by what authority he was writing this letter, because this letter included both encouragement, which is the primary thrust of what we're going to deal with today, but later on it also deals with some correction. And so he's kind of letting them know, I'm an apostle by the will of God, and so I love you, and we're going to say nice stuff, but then I'm going to hammer you, and that's why you have to listen to me, because Jesus said so, okay? Um, Obviously, they can choose whether they're going to submit to that or not, but... um, My great hope is they did, and we're going to. Uh, If you 
So, so Paul calls himself an apostle here. I think that brings up a element of discussion that we can have real quick. Um, some of you may hear of people um, describing themselves as apostles today. And I, I just want to deal with that because this is a question that can come up. Uh, and, and this is not the end-all, be-all, nor is this an in-depth look at this subject. I just want to give you guys a reference point for how to think through that, okay? So uh, are there apostles today? Should people, you know, can I tomorrow come in and say, hey guys, I, I would prefer now if you call me Apostle Vince, right? I mean, is that, is that cool? Is that how things should roll? Okay. You can probably tell by my smirk that I don't think so. But anyways, <clears throat> um, so here, here's the deal. If you look to Acts uh, chapter 1, 21 through 26, go check that out later, you see the process for replacing Judas um, and what Peter says when they're talking about that is that it's necessary that someone had been with Jesus from the beginning to even be considered. You guys remember that? Judas hangs himself because uh, he didn't do a good job being an apostle, and they're going to replace him. And so uh, Peter says, well, if we're going to consider somebody, they need to have been, been with Jesus from the beginning, been there, you know, pre-death, around the death, know about the resurrection. So being with Jesus was a prerequisite. Uh, in 1 Corinthians, Paul defends his apostleship because he had seen and been commissioned personally by the risen Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. You remember? Saul's heading to kill more Christians. Jesus says, you're going to stop doing that now, and you're going to serve me. And he says, yes, I am, right? So <laughs> that's how that goes. Um, I really like that story. So uh, that's, Paul defends his apostleship because Jesus himself chose him. He didn't have a whole lot of option. It wasn't like he decided one day, you know what? I'm pretty cool. I like the word apostle. Call me that, right? That wasn't how it happened, okay? Uh, Jesus showed up. So there are many who claim the title of apostle today. Uh, I think it's important to make a distinction between the office of apostle, like, uh, like the 12 apostles plus Paul, and the gift of apostle to the church is listed in Ephesians 4, right? We got apostles, uh, prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists, right? You got the gifts there in Ephesians 4. So the apostle, the word apostle there is listed as a gift given to the church. So we have the office of apostle that the first 12 inhabited along with Paul. Um, and then we have the gift of apostle. There needs to be a distinction made there, I think. The word apostle literally means sent one. So there are undoubtedly many today who do have an apostolic gift given to them by Jesus, right? You'll see this many times, those that are church planners, those that are overseers of networks of churches, they likely have this gift of apostleship. It's an equipping by God to serve uh, on gospel mission, okay? Uh, but I think it's confusing at best for people to take the title apostle because I, I think for a lot of folks, it leads them to a misunderstanding that either they assume or they, you know, other people assume they have the same authority that Paul and the other 12 apostles did. That office, I don't believe anybody's jumping into today, okay? Um, it's different to have the gift of apostle than it is to have the authority that came with the office of apostle that Paul is appealing to here. Paul says, I'm writing you this letter. I'm an apostle appointed by the Lord, and so what I'm saying to you bears some weight and bears some authority, okay? Now, if somebody comes to you today and wants to talk to you like Paul's talking to the Colossians, I don't think so. I don't think the office of apostle is working like that. Now, there can be a gift of apostleship to be a blessing to uh, God's people and the furthering of the mission, but those are two different things, okay? Uh, the Paul is appealing to the, the authority of an office that came direct from direct access to Jesus or being appointed directly by him, okay? Um, 
Okay, so in summary, I would just say this. There's an apostolic gift given to some men for the completing of gospel mission. Yes, that's clear from the scriptures. Um, but it does not hold the same authority as the office of apostle held by Paul and the twelve who were with Jesus. Okay, so I think that's an important distinction. I would also say that this is an open-handed issue, which means faithful Christians can believe differently about it and shouldn't argue about it. So, if you happen to be somewhere where there's a gathering of Christians and someone says, hey, I'm apostle so-and-so, don't pick up rocks or start shin-kicking them, okay? Um, Say, hey, how you doing, right? (laughs) Uh, However, you know, loving, listen to these words, loving, respectful, and spirited dialogue can be helpful and fruitful. This is not something we should, you know, stand on a hill to die about. I don't think it's something that is really worth arguing about. However, for us here, I just want to give you an idea. How do we deal with, think about the word apostle today? And for us, this would be our stance. There is a gift of apostle. There's an office of apostle. Paul in the original 12 had the office. That's why they do things like write scripture. Um, we're not writing scripture today, right? If you get a vision from the Lord, you think, and you're supposed to write an extra book of the Bible, come talk to me, and we're going to have a loving, respectful, spirited dialogue about that, Okay. And I'm going to help sit you down, all right? We'll make tea. It'll be so fun. Okay, let's go to verse 2. To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Colossae was a small town. Um, It was known for uh, being kind of a town that made really good dyes. It was very prosperous and successful, like D-Y-E, like to, you know, make things a different color, that kind of dye. Um, it was really prosperous and su- successful at one time, but by the time Paul wrote this letter, it was kind of on the decline, um, not a very happy place. Um, there are certain cities around here that I could name that would give you an idea, but I thought that probably wouldn't be a good idea, so just use your imagination. Um, so it was a small town, and it's surprising that Paul wrote to them with so many other pressing issues on his plate. You wouldn't think they would be like a major focus of his ministry. Um, but it's obvious that he thought the situation there was important enough for him to write this letter and to address it. Um, And I'm really glad he did because we have some rich and beautiful teaching in these four chapters as a result of him writing this uh, to address this church. So uh, we we see here that he says, grace to you and peace. Uh, What we see is a, a familiar greeting from Paul. It's a familiar and a loving greeting from him. And it's really clear that even without meeting these folks, he had a genuine affection for them. Uh, I had a, a situation recently that I was in, and I, I just think, I think Christians, because we are tied together by the gospel, because we at least share the experience of new birth, being new creations, um, going through the struggle of trying to be on gospel mission in, in, in a world and context that we find ourselves, we should have a an affection for each other, even without necessarily having met each other. And I think as soon as we do find out that somebody is a believer, we should at least have a, a positive inclination towards them. Um, I, I had a situation recently where uh, I, was, I was working on a project, and um, the gas was off, and so the guy from Duke Energy comes to turn on the gas, and he comes in, and he's doing his thing. He's turning valves. He's testing stuff and whatever else. And, you know, I just start chatting him up. I'm thinking, okay, let's find out if this, what this guy's about. And, you know, he's stuck here in the basement with me for 15 minutes, so we'll see if I can get him the gospel. And uh, he couldn't leave. He had to make sure the gas was on right, so I had him. Uh, but it was really quick. It was really it was quick 
I was quickly able to discern that um, this guy was also a believer, so I got to ask him how long he'd been serving Jesus, and it was, it was really amazing how quickly we started talking like we were old friends and uh, sharing testimony with each other and just encouraging each other in the faith. Um, you know, he sings in a men's choir, and I, and I don't, so we talked about that difference. Um, <laughs> You know, it was, it was cool. He was totally different to me. He's an African-American gentleman, a lot of cultural difference, um, you know, different line of work than I do, and, you know, a lot older than me, but, man, we had Christ in common. And so he ended up having to radio out because he was done testing the gas stuff forever. He had to radio out and say he was tell the next guy, like, hey, man, I'm going to be late. You know, I ran, I ran into something. I don't know how dishonest that was for him to say, but he ran into me, and uh, we ended up talking about Jesus for 25 minutes past what it took him to turn the gas on. So, um, and it was like hard for us to pull ourselves away from each other, man. We, it was just, it was an encouraging, uh, and it was a beautiful time in, in the basement of a ratchet house. So um, it, it was cool. And, and I guess I just, I'm just, I'm just relating to the fact that Paul doesn't really know these people, but he knows they love Jesus, and so he loves them, right? And it's just, it's there. And uh, I don't know. I, I think that's cool. Um, verse, let's look at verse 3 and 4. Let's read those. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. We see here the universal connection that the people of God should enjoy because we are bound together with the scarlet bonds of the shed blood of our sinless Savior. Paul had not planted this church or even met most of these believers, and yet he was genuinely thankful to God because of their faith in the Lord and their subsequent love for people. The idea we see expressed here and countless other places in the scriptures informs and defines our mission here at Love City. We believe that faith in God works by the love of God. Doesn't it say that in Corinthians? It does. Even if you don't remember, go look it up, all right? Faith in God works by the love of God, and the love of God causes us to love him in return, right? God loves us first. He goes first. That causes us to love him, and the overflow and outworking of that loving relationship between us and God is love for other people. And so because God has loved us so well, we are able to reciprocate that. There is a, an overflow and an outworking that causes us to then love others. Paul is saying, I am grateful that that is working in the life of this church. Um, and, and I would be too. Amen. <clears throat> uh, I'm going to borrow the wisdom of an ancient sage from way back to kind of explain this better. Um, it's from way, way back in the year 1994. And his name was Forrest Gump. I would just tell you that uh, loving God and loving people goes together like peas and carrots. Okay? You know what I'm saying now? You're going to love God. You're going to love people. It's going to be automatic. Right? You put peas on the plate and there's no carrots. It just doesn't seem right. Right? Forrest Gump taught us that in 1994. You should be thankful for that. All right. Verses 5 and 6. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, just as in all the world also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. Now, some of you may honestly be thinking after all that I just said about God loving us, us loving God, and that causing us to love people, some of you might honestly, your inner monologue is something along the lines of, sometimes it is so hard to love people. And really, you would probably only be thinking that because we have spent a lot of time here defining love, right? Because most people could let themselves off the hook from this, 
this deep and prominent command of the Scriptures that we love everybody, right? Most people could say, in some general sense, I, I can at least have a positive inclination towards folks, but the problem is we've spent too much time here defining love through the Scriptures, and we don't let ourselves off that hook. And so, you know what the real command is. You know how deep this goes, we know that love is not just positive feelings or mere affection. It is a divine attribute of God that we share as his image bearers, imperfectly because of sin. But we're talking about, you know, 1 John 4 says twice, God is love. That instantly puts this in the real deep and mysterious bucket, and it instantly starts calling us to think about it more than, than maybe we would some other thing, right? We've got to figure out what does that mean. If God is love, he loves us, we're called to love him and love others, that's, that's a big deal. I need to think about that. I need to let the scriptures inform me about what's being said there. And uh, we know that, that love is, is most purely and perfectly displayed at the cross of Christ. And so 1 John also tells us, if you want to understand love, you're going to have to look at the cross. If you want to understand love, you're going to have to set your eyes on the beautiful sacrifice of Christ on that day. And that's, where you're, that's your starting point for trying to begin to understand what love is. And so this is a big deal. And this means in order to love people, right? So I know you guys have already connected all these dots. We've had this conversation enough times. You guys know that what that means is in order for you to love people, you have to serve them. That can be hard. And be willing to lay down your own wants and needs and desires in order to prefer them above yourselves. You know that you can't just say, oh yeah, I love everybody, and kind of leave it at that. You know that what Jesus did was lay down absolutely everything on our behalf. And held nothing back. That he considered himself low and us high and served us all the way to death on a cross. Right? And so that, if that defines love and that's what we're called to, that makes this stuff a lot harder. How can we be expected to do this? Sometimes people make it seem impossible. People can be mean. Anybody ever met a mean person? Had to deal with one. Yeah, anybody ever been a mean person? Yeah, no hands in the air, you bunch of liars. Sometimes people are mean. Um, sometimes people are hateful. Sometimes people are vindictive. And sometimes they set themselves against us in actual opposition, and, and, they, and they try to do these things. Some people say and do unbelievably hurtful things. And many times it's on purpose. How then can we truly love them as the scriptures define it. How can we do that? Here's how. Let me read you verses five and six. I'm answering the question, how can we love when it can be as difficult as it can be, right? Sometimes it is so hard to even smile at people as, as vicious and nasty as they are. How am I supposed to lay myself down and sacrifice on their behalf in order to love and serve them? How am I supposed to do that when people are hateful, vindictive, and they do all this stuff? Verses 5 and 6 will answer that question for us. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world, also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. Here's how you love people. You understand the gospel. Here's how you love people. You understand the mean, vindictive person that set themselves up as an enemy against you. That was you in position to God. 
You understand that he went first setting the bar. He went first setting the example that every single one of us was the hateful, vindictive, mean one. Every single one of us was blind in our sin. Every single one of us was chained to our sinful tendencies with no hope for escape. And it was only because of his great love and going first, willing to sacrifice himself and lay down his life for a bunch of people that were like that to him. The very ones who were guilty of the transgression that required his sacrifice. That's who he was there for. Spending precious breaths while upon the cross, asking for the forgiveness of the ones who put him there. That is how we love absolutely everyone. We follow after Jesus. How do you love everyone? You actually believe the gospel. You let the gospel do what it does. It goes in and it changes your heart. It takes it from a heart that is self-serving and self-focused and all about you. And it starts to change that heart and make it mirror the heart of Christ that was all about us and all about what was better for those who he loved. The gospel does that. The gospel has the power to do it. Praise God. That's how you do it. I know it's hard. I know it's a big call. I know it's completely outside the realm of what is possible with just what we have to deal with, right? If it was just up to us, we wouldn't truly and actually love anyone, even the people we like. Because selfishness and pride would cause us to be self-serving and manipulative even in those relationships. It is only through the grace and the truth of the gospel that we are changed to the point that humility takes us low and allows us to actually love in a way that reflects the heart of God. The gospel does it. The gospel's the way. Praise God. God goes first, loving his enemies through the perfect sacrifice of Christ on the cross. He declares that he has paid the price so that by faith, hope and freedom can be grasped by the very ones whose transgressions made the cross necessary. You sit and think about that the next time somebody's mean to you. You sit and think about that the next time somebody opposes you. You sit there and think about that the next time somebody's vindictive and manipulative and they're going around behind your back. Somebody's doing their best to come against you. I'm talking to those of you I've had conversations with recently. They're telling me, I can't forgive them. I need you to get over that. I need you to quit thinking that way because Jesus forgave you. Bottom line, really discussion over. I love you, and I realize that these hurts and these pains are real, and I realize it feels like you can't let that go. But here's the thing. The only way you refuse to love and forgive someone else is to pridefully forget of how much you've been forgiven. You need to go read that parable of the wicked servant until you understand where you stand in the parable. Because if you are withholding forgiveness from anyone today, you stand in the place of the wicked servant, and you're in peril, friend. I love you. Please don't do that. It's not worth it. Forgiveness is a gift you give yourself, and it's, it's completely uh, required for obedience to Jesus and to follow his example. Praise God. I'm thankful for the grace to do it. I realize that today you're the person that's saying, I can't do that. I know. I know. I can't either. Humble yourself. Declare your need for God's grace and help and mercy. Ask him to bring to you whatever is needed, the strength to be humble. That doesn't sound right. I promise you it is. I promise you it is. The kingdom of God is upside down. It's inside out. Humility leads to honor. It takes strength to be humble, to follow Jesus, to forgive everyone, to love in spite of pain. If you're going to truly love people, guys, if you're going to truly follow after Christ, it is going to open you up to a vulnerability that means pain will probably come with it. But it's worth it. I promise. If you don't trust me, Jesus thinks so too. Trust him. 
I find it encouraging that from a vantage point of a Roman jail, Paul's faith was never shaken, that the gospel was constantly bearing fruit and increasing. Did you hear that? Remember the setting. This guy probably isn't writing this himself. He's probably dictating it to Timothy because his chains are too heavy. And here's what he's got to say. I, I'm so thankful today that the gospel is constantly doing what it's done from the beginning, that it's ever increasing throughout the whole world, and it's doing exactly what it was intended to do from jail, right? A lot of times we're having a hard time sitting at the counter eating our cream puffs in the AC, you know what I mean? Oh, life's so hard, right? What are you talking about, man? The gospel's doing its work. Well, I can't see it. The world looks jacked up. I know. I know. You can't always see what the gospel's doing, but, but reflect back. Think about your own life, and I promise you, man, if you start listening with a spiritual ear and you get in some more conversations, you'll see over and over again that God's spirit is working and the gospel is doing its work. It's never stopped. By the power of God, the Holy Spirit is moving throughout the earth and seeds of the gospel are being planted all the time. It's changing hearts. It's doing what it does. And that's reason for encouragement when everything else looks bad. He said the gospel's constantly bearing fruit, constantly and increasing. No matter the difficulty of his current circumstances, it is obvious that Paul was all in on the truth that he expressed in Romans 1.16. He said the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. It was clear that no matter what was going on around him, no matter what his environment was, no matter how dark the situation, he was doubled down and fully betting on the fact that the gospel is God's power unto salvation. And it had enough power that no matter who was trying to oppress it, who was trying to stop it, who was even trying to slow it down, it was going to keep moving forward, constantly being fruitful and doing exactly what God sent it to do. That's encouraging. I want to think about that the next time I'm feeling bummed. I want to think about that the next time I'm focused on what I'm sad about. I don't mean to make light about the difficulties of our life, guys. I realize there is really hard stuff in this life. But I also realize... Even if you were chained in a prison right now, simply for the fact that you wouldn't quit talking about Jesus, this should be our attitude. Minimally, I want to set for you the high bar of how do we stay encouraged in this life that oftentimes is crummy, okay? Let me, I'll come back down. Let me change my voice. Isn't life often, often crummy? It is. Now I'm, coming, now I'm coming on the soft side. Life's often crummy. I understand that. Yes, it is. However, life was pretty crummy from a man Paul right here. Okay? The brothers in chains for the simple fact that he loved Jesus wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't quit telling people about it. Okay, So let's stack up what we're going through to what my brother Paul's going through. And let's see, man, he was staying encouraged simply in the fact that the gospel has power in the midst of that. And so I'm just asking you in the midst of what you're going through, can you be encouraged by the fact that the gospel has power? That the gospel is ever fruitful and ever increasing throughout the earth. Man, but I see a lot of people that don't seem like they're loving Jesus. Yeah, I know. But we also can't see everything that's going on all over the world. And um, I know it seems like we have access to more information globally ever than we ever have before in the world. And that's probably true. But you also have to realize there's a vantage point from which people use that ability, right? And, and I guess all I'm saying is there's not a lot of people spending a lot of time finding all the good stories about what the gospel's doing in people's hearts and getting that to you know, all the eyes of everyone on the globe. Right, because maybe you've heard this idea before that you know bad news sells, right? And so, typically, those that have the ability to kind of get information out in, in a in a widespread way, and social media is changing some of this. We can get some good news out too, and that's that's awesome. We're part of that's what we're doing with the ten verses in ten weeks. Um, 
You know, 2,500 people saw Romans 3.23, right? 1,200 people saw John 3.16. That's awesome. Praise God. I think God has given us these tools in this time to get the gospel out to as many people as possible. But in general, uh, I think there's more beautiful, powerful gospel things happening in the earth than most of us are aware of. And I think by faith, and, and Paul didn't have a Twitter feed going right there where he's like, oh, check it out. The Philippians, you know, just... Got a bunch of people saved. Oh, look at all the baptisms happening over in Ephesus, right? There was, he didn't have all that. So how was he making this declaration from a Roman uh, jail? It was by faith. It was by faith in the power of the gospel. That's why I'm saying he, he had bought into the fact that Romans 1.16 was true. That's why he wrote it. Gospel is the power of salvation to those that believe. And he knew that that power was doing what it is God sent it to do. He knew the truth was going to keep on marching. What if people try to stop it? They haven't been able to yet. Don't see it happening. As a matter, as a matter of fact, historically, the harder people try to stop it, uh, the brighter it burns. So I don't want to sound like a weirdo, but I say, come on, you know? Amen. Verses 7 and 8. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, And he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. Uh, We see Paul here commending the man who had given his life for the preaching of the gospel and the planting of the Colossian church. Uh, Many Bible translations render this uh, verse here where it says, um, in verse 7 where it says, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. Uh, I think even most translations render that as faithful minister. Uh, however, I'm thankful that the NASB goes ahead and translates the word down to its root meaning. I, I, I'm just thankful that NASB does that translation work for us. It helps us understand that, I think sometimes people have a misperception of what minister means. Minister means servant or one who serves. Okay, you guys got that? I think pastors and leaders among God's people would do well to remember that Paul's mentioning of Epaphras highlights his status as a fellow bondservant of Christ. And... His primary accomplishment was not fame or notoriety. It was not the biggest congregation or the largest offerings in the region. Here's what it was. It was the faithful preaching of the grace of God in truth to the Colossians. That's what Paul has to say about it. Epaphras, the faithful brother that brought you the grace of God in truth. That's why this guy was worthy of mention in this letter. And uh, that, I think, is his greatest credit. I'm thankful for that, and I think those that would consider themselves leaders among God's people would do well to remember that, uh, including myself. Amen. Uh, Verse 9. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So here we see Paul. He prays for these people that they will be filled with the knowledge of God's will. To discern and do God's will should be the primary concern of every Christian. Do you guys hear that? I'm going to say it again. To discern and do God's will should be the primary concern of every Christian. We must start with knowing the Word. The Word reveals to us what God wills for all of us, uh, as in 1 Thessalonians 5, where we are told to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks. It goes on to say, this is God's will for you. In a general sense, all of us who are following after Christ, it is God's will we know to rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, and in everything, give thanks. 
Also in Mark 12, where we are given the supreme commandment from the Lord Jesus himself to love the Lord our God with all our hearts, soul, minds, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. These are general things. If we know the word of God, if it's written upon our hearts, then we will know these things are the will of God for all of us. And knowing and doing the will of God should be the primary concern of every Christian. It is only once we know and obey God's will for all of us that we begin to have the wisdom and discernment to understand his individual will for each of us, right? So many times people's frustration with, I'm not getting a word from God about what to do next, is a lack of really just obeying the basic things the Bible has said for all of us to do, right? So I would, just, I would ask you, friend, stop being frustrated with the Lord and, and start digging in the word and seeing what parts of his generally revealed will for all of us maybe aren't in operation in your life. Because God is a good steward of words and commandments and time, and I just don't see him wasting time trying to give you some new individual commandment when you've not even taken the time or the care to follow the general ones that he's made available to all of us. Whoo, that's exciting, isn't it? Everyone like that one. Okay. But I want a special word from the Lord. You've got one. It's, this is special, man. The word of God is special. It's incredible that he would give us this. These words of life, this bread of life that we can be sustained upon that can lead us and guide us, that he can reveal to us in this word who he is and, and how he thinks about us and how it is we are to relate to him. The word of God is precious. We should treat it as such. Verse 10. Verse 10, verse 10 says, uh, So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Uh, we see this language elsewhere, this uh, walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. We see it in Ephesians 4, um, that, that we would, by God's grace, walk in a manner worthy of bearing his name. This is an idea that Paul communicates in several different places, that we should consider the fact that bearing the name of Christ, we need to walk in a manner worthy of that. What does that mean? It means we should care deeply about the fact that in all our actions and interactions, we represent Christ. And we either make him look like the loving Savior King who changes the hearts of his people and fills them with peace and love, or we make him look like just another among many false gods with no real power to change anything. When we walk around declaring that we belong to Jesus, we are representing him in every action and interaction, and we are representing him one of two ways. Either as a powerful God that changes people and that his gospel really is what Romans 1.16 says it is, or we're representing him as yet just another false deity, and we should be pitied. Do we walk in a manner worthy of his name? It's only going to be by God's grace that we do. Let's not get it twisted. You're not going to right now decide through self-discipline and white-knuckling it that I'm going to do a better job uh, repping Jesus. Is that what they say on the street? Repping him? Is that, that communicates what I'm trying to say, right? Yes. So we do, though. We represent Christ everywhere we go. And that's what this is over and over again Paul saying to Many of the churches he writes to, guys, you need to care about the fact that you walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Walk in a manner worthy of the fact that God has placed his hand upon you and drawn you in and made you a child, that you represent him. That needs to matter to us, and we need to think about it in every situation. I think sometimes different words would escape our you know, mouth hole if we were thinking about this, Right? Would you say some stuff different in some situations if you're thinking about the fact that this interaction I'm about to have with this person, I'm going to represent Christ? If that was the grid through which every conversation was filtered. I'm just, okay, again, I'm just setting the bar. 
right? Don't stew in condemnation over it. Repent and ask for Jesus' help to do better with it. Thank God for repentance and grace. Not just saving grace, but the sanctifying grace that empowers us to obey verses like this. Because it's a big call. Uh, it, 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 it requires a constancy and uh, paying attention and an intentionality in, in the way we live really every minute of our lives. Um, but, you know, this is one of hundreds of scriptures that just takes a wrecking ball and destroys this sacred secular divide that people live in, right? Some people have church folk, church life, spiritual side of their life, and then kind of everything else they do. And that is not in any way the scriptures represent the way this works. When Jesus comes and rescues you, takes you from death to life, now you're alive and now you live as such. You walk in a way that is worthy of representing one so good and perfect and loving as Jesus. All the time, in everything. You mean at home when it's just my wife and kids? Yes. You mean at home when it's just my husband and kids? Yes. All the time. You mean when I'm alone, alone? Yeah, because you know what? You never know when someone's listening. Integrity's being the same when everyone's around or not. Verse 11. Strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously. We hear the echo here in verse 11 of uh, Philippians 4.13, which says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. In its context, that verse is describing the steadfastness and patience and joy that the Spirit of God provides to those who trust Jesus. And he gives us these things so that we may endure and be content in both feast and famine, ease and difficulty, and when we are down in the valleys, or up on the mountaintops of this life. Philippians 4.13 is oftentimes quoted as a, a sports verse. You know, I, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I mean, I'm, I'm all about, you know, you praying and asking God to help you perform well in sports. I, I think that's fine, and I think God cares about every part of your life, but Philippians 4.13 does not mean you're going to win the gold at the Olympics, right? If you, if you, are not very athletic, and you just start quoting Philippians 4.13 to yourself, you got it on the fridge, on the mirror, on the rearview mirror in the car, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You're, you're going to end up um, disappointed at the Olympic tryouts, okay? Because that verse isn't going to get you there. What that verse is saying is that, if, if you read before it, what Paul's saying is, I've learned to be content with very little, and I've learned to be content with much. I can do all things. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We see the echoes of this here as well, where he says... Strengthen with all power, according to his glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness. Immovable. Well, what if, what if I'm struggling financially? Steadfast. What if, I, what if everything's going really good and, and, I'm, and I got a big cushion in the bank? I'm steadfast. I'm not cursing God when I'm, if I'm struggling, and, and, and I'm not forgetting God if I'm doing good. Steadfast. Stay in the course. Right? So we see the echoes of that verse, uh, steadfast and patience and joyously. That's a key. I don't like hard stuff, I know, but because of Christ, it can still be joyous. Because you have hope, it can still be joyous. Because you're not alone in it, it can still be joyous. Because the word of God has told you that, that God is faithful to never leave you nor forsake you, it can be joyous. The fact that you have other brothers and sisters in Christ that have likely gone through the same thing or might be doing it right now and you're not alone in that aspect means it can be joyous. The fact that this journey is not as lonely as sometimes our enemy would like us to believe. 
That makes even working through difficulty with steadfastness and patience a joyous task. We can have joy in all things because of Jesus. And that's a really beautiful thing. Verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. When all else is dark and hope seems but an ever-dimming flicker in the distance, it is in these moments that we are called to rise up and be the light of the world. No matter what may come against us, no matter if all the legions of hell were to fix their attention upon our destruction, they cannot be successful in dragging us into despair because no matter if we were reduced to weeping in a pile of ash like Job of old, we can cling to the truth that we are a people who have received the gospel as our inheritance. We have the gospel not because we earned it, not because there was something found in us that was worthy of it, but simply because grace and forgiveness and salvation and joy are the treasures owned by the God of the universe, and he has chosen to make us his children. That's why we get to inherit the gospel. That's why we get to inherit all the beautiful things that come with it. Not because we were good enough, not because we earned it, not because it should be ours, but because the God of the universe is the owner of all those precious things. And simply out of his own prerogative and his great love for us, he decided to make us his children. We are people of inheritance. This eternal inheritance is our ever-vigilant vanguard, striking down our enemies of deception and discouragement, allowing us to walk confidently forward in a manner worthy of the Lord. I praise God for that. May we be a people so radically changed by the power of the gospel that we are able to have a genuine love and concern for the eternity of everyone, whether we have met them yet or not. May we be a people who diligently seek God's will, that we may walk in a manner worthy of the name of Christ. And may we be a people who rejoice in every circumstance, because no matter the difficulties we may face, we have received the gospel as a precious inheritance. And it declares our eternal connection to the Father who gave it to us. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. We are thankful, Lord, for the book of Colossians. We are thankful for the journey that uh, we're going to walk through by your spirit and with your help through this book. Uh, We are thankful, Lord, that in the midst of any deception, any distraction, any lie or deceit, that holding up King Jesus and his gospel high is the cure. I thank you the light of the gospel vanquishes all darkness and murkiness, any attempt by the enemy uh, to bring confusion. I thank you, Lord, that the gospel is a beautiful truth, that uh, it takes men and women who were dark in their understanding, and it, it, it makes them able to be the light of the world. I thank you, Lord, that we only have potential in this life to walk in a manner worthy of your name because of your grace. If we were left to ourselves, there'd be no hope of us representing you or even ourselves well. But because of your grace and mercy, you have seen fit to come and empower us, to give us the strength to live steadfast, patient, and joyous lives. I thank you that this is true. 
Lord God, I ask right now that you would forgive us for every single time we have made you look as if you were just another powerless, fake God. Forgive us for every time we've forgotten that our words represent you, that every interaction we have, that every action that we partake in, Lord, that every single time we do anything, that, Lord God, we are communicating to people something about your nature and character. God, help us to not ever again disregard that. We ask for your forgiveness for every single time we've fallen short in that area, and we ask that you would empower us, Lord, first of all, just to remember this life can be so busy. There's so many things pulling at our attention, God. Sometimes we just aren't thinking about it in the moment. Sometimes we just let the situation and the difficulties that we're dealing with overcome us, Lord. Sometimes we fail at this simply because we don't remember who we represent. Please help us in that. And God, I ask that um, as we do better in that and we remember and our, our minds are constantly focused on the fact that we represent you and that we were called to walk in a manner worthy of your name, that we... Uh, when we have that option, Lord, we'd make the right choice, that we would care deeply about representing you well, that the great love that you've poured out on us would cause us, Lord, to want to invite others to experience that love. And one of the best ways we can do that is by representing you well. Help us to walk in a manner that's worthy. Lord, we thank you. I thank you, Lord, that um, you care about everyone. I think you cared about the church at Colossae, even though it wasn't a big church, even though it wasn't a big city. I thank you, Lord, that you, by your Holy Spirit, you had Paul come and deal with the distractions that were coming there because you wanted the purity of the gospel to reign in that place and for that to be another source of the outflow of the power and work of the gospel. I thank you that the gospel truly does have power. I thank you that it's real and that it's changing us even now. Thank you for letting us be a part of that great work. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.